Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And I'm Clint Jones. And this month, we're talking about Hotline Miami, which was released in 2012 for Windows. Uh, it was developed by Jonathan Soderstrom and Dennis Wedden, collectively known as Denaton Games. The game was published by Devolver Digital and released in October. Devolver Digital. We've heard this name before. Um, this is kind of, as I understand it, their first real big breakthrough in terms of publishing a well-known game. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Uh, based on what I saw, they wanted this game bad. Uh, this game actually started out uh, something called Cocaine Cowboys. These guys were basically <laughs> trying to make the craziest 80s Miami game they could they could think of, and uh, they ended up settling on Hotline Miami. And that's actually why we chose the game. Uh, these are basically just two guys with the idea that they just wanted to make a video game that no one else had made that they wanted to, to play. It, it wasn't to make money. In fact, looking in on, on some of their success, they're actually a little reluctant to be in the position they are now. They just made something that they thought was great. Uh, that's kind of why we chose to play it. Uh, it was nominated for Game of the Year in 2012, up against things like Mass Effect, and these guys were just totally blown away by their success. It's always nice to have a, a, a surprise like that come through, especially when you're down to your last dollar and about to get kicked out for not being able to pay your rent. Oh yeah, I, I think he said his dad paid his rent for the last two months of development. <laughs> hey, uh, turns out that investment paid off in space. Oh yeah. Live that dream. Well, like you were saying with the Cocaine Cowboys thing, I think the reason they ended up having to change that name is because it's actually a documentary that was talking about the drug scene in Miami in the 80s has that same name. So um, after realizing that they were going to be competing with another, you know, properties namespace, they were like, you know what, let's find something else. And they settled, like you said, on Hotline Miami, which, you know, sounds kind of like a porno name, but eh, what are you going to do? <laughs> I think you go with it. <laughs> you lean into it. Get that. Base thumping. This game takes a lot from from things of, of that era. Since we were talking about you know Miami in the eighties, you've got it definitely pulls from things like Scarface or Miami Vice, things like that. Yeah, definitely that. And uh, the film Drive was another one that sort of comes up in my mind, even though that takes place in L.A. There's something similar going on here with like sinister gang nightlife and, you know, a lone Avenger as it is going out and, you know, taking it to the streets. And you definitely take it to the streets in this game. Oh, yeah. This game has a pretty, like you said, rich base of influences. But, you know, since then, it has also gone on to influence some other things. You know, there's lots of top-down action games that have made their way into the scene. Um, it has another one of those instant restart mechanics that, you know, really eliminates the friction in terms of trial and error. And it's got just an impeccable style. I think this game is one of the first uh, indie games that I found that like really brought a whole aesthetic of like the Miami drug scene to bear in one property. You know, it, it connects all the dots from the music to the vivid visuals to the, you know, dirty look and feel of all the locations you crawl through. Yep, and I guess before we get too far in, some people aren't familiar with Hotline Miami. This is a top-down shooter, pretty much, kind of reminiscent of, of old uh, twin-stick shooters from back in the day. It is probably one of the most violent games I've ever played in my life, uh, but the really cool thing about it is this is majorly pixelated, so it's almost worse because it's not implicit in everything, or explicit in everything that it shows you. It shows you like a mirror of, of what it might be and then your head kind of fills in the blanks. And I think that just makes it so much 
more effective and even amplifies the effect. I think that even though it doesn't have the most realistic visuals, being a pixel art sort of thing, it is still very visceral. Some of the moves you pull in this game, like when you bang someone's head against the ground, there's only a few pixels that they use to show you what's happening, but it's still not a move you'd see in, say, Grand Theft Auto. It says a lot with very few pixels. Um, the body language, especially, like you said, is super uh, evocative and you know upsetting to some people. You know, this is a game that's, like we said, hyper-violent, and that's not always easy to go, but I think I think the game transcends that violence. I don't think it uses it distastefully, is what I mean. Like, it knows what, what it's trading in, and it uses it to elicit the feelings that it's trying to. It's not just being violent for violence's sake. Oh, I agree. And and even some of the some of the works of art that we talked about earlier that it came from and has, you know, influenced later has have the same thing like the movie Drive. You know, it's pretty, you know, monotone the entire movie and then out of nowhere it's just hyper violence and it's it's almost like an exclamation point to dr- drive the point home of of what they what they were trying to get you to feel. Yeah. So I guess Let's talk a bit, a little bit about this, how this game actually plays. You know, like you said, it's a top-down sort of Miami Vice-style shooter, hyper-violent, but it blends that top-down perspective with, you know, weird, surreal storytelling told in between the levels with stealth in some cases um, and with, obviously, uh, a banging soundtrack and some crazy, vivid visuals of the, the Miami-style culture in the 1980s. Oh yeah, we almost missed talking about how great the soundtrack was. If if I was going to describe this game, that would have been one of the first things I would have mentioned for sure. Totally. Um, the, the soundtrack is like fantastic, and the interesting thing about it is uh, they sourced it from, uh, as I understand, like Bandcamp. They were just like going around on the website Bandcamp and trying to find cool music in an electronica style from the '80s that they could put in their game, and they stumbled upon a few different. Um, composers that feature heavily in the first game moon being one uh perturbator scattle these are names of the the acts that end up appearing in the game and have multiple tracks and contributions to it yeah some of these guys i think they said uh they were only like 14 years old when i mean these are just kids making music in their mom's basements but it is so good like even if you don't play the game go to spotify and listen to the soundtrack it is insane they're great. They're great tracks, but I think the game even elevates them to be more than the sum of their parts. Um, the all the music is like super. I guess all I can say is it it really puts you in a bit of a flow state when you're going through and playing it. Um, you know, Moon's Crystals is probably the one that that immediately comes to mind. Is just like when I think of this game and getting in sort of the zone of just going through a level and making my way through eliminating all the the foes that come at me i can hear that bass bumping and the little plinking of the the synth it's like synth in my head yeah and you almost have to get in that flow too because we also didn't mention this game is just stupid hard like it is you're gonna die a thousand times before you get through this game guaranteed it's gonna be worse than i was at celeste by far like (laughs) it's just the nature of the game and you almost you'll get stuck on something and then you'll find yourself just almost like getting into the music getting into a rhythm and then you almost it's like a ultra violent simon says you've got to hit like everything in the right order The 
game incentivizes you to do a little bit of trial and error by, like we said, uh, making a super fast reload and sort of testing how your enemies will react, taking advantage of their AI, you know, their their patrol paths, and making it taking advantage of different weapons too. Like you were able to go around and, and melee people, but you know, once you start getting more and more enemies in this game, the game starts allowing you to pick up guns as well. So there's a lot of firepower that you uh, get access to, getting new guns and masks, which is another important aesthetic component of this game. I think one of the things about this game that distinguishes it from other top-down shooters like Robotron or Smash TV uh, is that in those games, those are more arcade shooters. You're in a room, you're, you have to survive against what's coming there. Uh, in this game, you are the attacker. You're going on the offense. You go to a building, you have to clear them out and go through every room. That lets them set it up much more like a puzzle game. You have to go through, you look at the patrol paths, as Brian said, you see how people might react to one thing or another, and you kind of create your chain of violence and mayhem along the way. And if you do it stylishly enough, if you do it uh, quickly enough, then the game gives you better points for that too. So it's encouraging a kind of fast thinking, but still a very planned out sort of thing. Especially with the um, instant restart in the level too. You can tweak a plan, you can polish a plan until it works, because when you die, which again is often, you go right back to the beginning and you can try again. Yeah, I definitely liked how they used almost combat puzzles. That's kind of the idea, the idea that I was thinking around when uh, we were talking about this game and playing it. It's like they almost, it, it is a puzzle game. There's a million ways to tackle it, but there's only a few ways to do it right. And it's that repeat, rinse, repeat, and try again that, that really drives it home. Now, I don't know if you guys uh, experienced this as well, or if this was just a function of my overly sensitive mouse or something, but at the beginning, I was having a little bit of trouble controlling this game, and it felt a little weird to me. You know, I played with mouse and keyboard, uh, and I think you kind of have to with this game so you can swivel your, your character around quickly. But after a little while, I, I felt like the controller disappeared, and I was able to react to enemies appearing in the screen rather than just kind of going for cheap shots through doorways and stuff like that. Yeah, it definitely has a curve on this one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the curve, while I think it does a pretty good job tutorializing it and sort of ramping up throughout the course of Hotline Miami, uh, the second game kind of just picks up where the first one left off. And Hotline Miami 2, to me, was much harder. Oh, yeah, by far. Uh, I think they'd gotten their, their flow down. They'd had some people play test the first one. It's ridiculously hard. But on the second one, they they're like, okay, guys, you wanted this cranked up to 11? Here you go. And they did it with a difficulty, too. What I also thought was interesting about these levels, aside from, like you said, Josh, being puzzles, is they all embody a different aspect of the city of Miami. You know, there's the dance club scene, there's the police station scene, there's the bar scene, there's the office building scene. Um, there's just, they, they actually introduce a surprising amount of variety into basically just top-down box levels. And going through the entire thing always feels like a bit of a drug-induced haze, which is especially apparent when, at the end of a mission, you have a little interlude scene where you're going to visit your buddy in a supermarket or, you know, waking up in your apartment uh, with the excellent sort of hangover track, Deep Cover by Sun Ra. <laughs> I think that was maybe 
one of my favorite soundtracks or songs for the soundtrack. It's not a banger like some of the other songs, but it really sets the tone for the game. Like, I started hearing that and I felt hungover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for having a soundtrack that, that wasn't theirs that they did not create, they did a great job of finding songs that evoked the exact emotion and feeling that they were trying to portray in their level. Like that was it's not that the music was good, it was it was great, but it also just perfectly fit everything. Yeah, like every single time. It was amazing. Yeah, uh, and like just sort of going out into the vast world of the internet and, you know, five or six artists sort of just appear out of the ether to to perfectly soundtrack this game that had been developed completely independently is just like the most wonderful kind of artistic serendipity that I can think of. Is it worth talking about the story? I know we've kind of touched on it briefly. Yeah, uh, let's let's go through it a little bit because, you know, we talked about sort of the elements of it, but let's talk about the setup. Um, you play as a character called Jacket who has pretty much no dialogue as I see it, but during the first chunk of the game, you're completing various tasks that you receive on your answering machine as you wake up in your drug-induced haze. Uh, wake, wake up in a haze, don your mask, answer the phone, and off you go to cause more mayhem. Yeah, basically someone is sending you cryptic messages and uh, you're going out and completing hits or, or, or what have you. No idea why, but you are. And after a little while, you do end up going on a mission to rescue a woman who is apparently your girlfriend. And then from there on out, uh, she sort of appears in your apartment before the missions in various sort of places. So I thought the girlfriend, um, she wasn't someone who was known to you before, but you rescued her from the one, I don't know, club or whatever it was. Yeah, the mafia boss. The mafia boss, yeah. Yeah, I kind of saw it as she was like a prostitute. And actually, I, I believe, even in the message, they said that you needed to go take care of her, which in the messages from everyone else meant go kill her. Uh, <laughs> but you but but you don't. And that actually kind of ties in. Uh, actually, it's perfect for Drive, too. All these movies have some, some damsel in distress. Mm. The guy goes out to save her, even though it's, you know, not what he's supposed to be doing. <laughs> Correct. And if you can follow this convoluted story at all, it's his undoing, too, because somebody puts a hit out on him, assuming because he did the thing he wasn't supposed to do and taking this woman when he was supposed to take her out. Yeah, I, I think that's what they were getting at here. I mean, I, I tried to do a little research on the story of this game, and it, it is super convoluted, and it only gets worse in um, uh, Hotline 2, where they s- take the same amount of convolutedness and spread it off across like seven different storylines and seven different people. Amp it up to 11, right? This is a game that does trade in, like, indirect storytelling in the same way that, like, uh, and get out your bingo card, Dark Souls does. Um, but it is a, uh, it's a cool, it's a story that's more about atmosphere than it is about, like, beat-by-beat plot points, at least in Hotline 1. Yeah, definitely, for sure. I've played this game through probably four or five times, and I don't think I've really, truly paid attention to the story by the time you get to the end, because it's so convoluted. You're just, you're, you're there for the levels. I mean, the gameplay is just out of this world nothing like it and the story's a cool backdrop but totally unnecessary yeah like like i said it's more about the mood like you know when you wake up at one point in the hospital after the hit has been taken out on you like you realize that you're in like the lowest of the low place of that game and you kind of have to crawl your way back up but that's when you start going on your tear that eventually takes you to the end of the game where you you know assault the police station kill all the corrupt cops in there corrupt cops quote unquote 
Um, I think what I'm getting at here is we have an unreliable narrator on our hand. We don't know exactly what what's going on in Jacket's head after the second half of this game. Um, even in the first half of the game, I think one of the first things you do is you walk into your living room and there's three figures with animal masks sitting there interrogating you and taunting you for what you don't know. It's clear we're dealing with someone who's not quite mentally stable already. Right, and then uh, one of them just keeps asking him, do you like hurting people? And he just like keeps poking and prodding, and yeah. Yeah, definitely an unreliable narrator situation. I think that's that's a theme that sort of goes throughout the entirety of this game. And, um, well, I guess you kind of have to be a mentally disturbed individual to do the kind of stuff that Jacket's going around doing in this game. <laughs> oh, for sure. And actually, the, the unreliable narrator gets even worse. At the very apex of the game, you play as another character that you've encountered before, and you see it from a totally different perspective, and all the things that you thought happened are now told a completely different way. So you have no idea at the end what happened, what didn't happen, what was in a coma, what was real. Like, I don't think you get any clear picture. Yeah, the only thing that's sort of eventually revealed is that the janitors were the the perpetrators of these phone calls that you were getting, the janitors of your building. <laughs> and yep. I guess if you got like a certain amount of unlocks, you would reveal that they were like part of a conspiracy or something to like sow discontent between the US and Russia. And if you didn't get enough of those things, they just said, what, we were just having some fun. Which, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting sort of ending, and I think it sort of highlights the nihilism that this game says about like, what what did it really all matter for anyway? And that's kind of like it's what it's leeringly saying to you at the end of every level as you parade your way back out to your car past a horde of dead corpses that you uh, created. <laughs> I do like that. It's almost like a retrospective. Like in the moment, you're doing all this crazy shit. And then at the end, it makes you go back and look at everything you've done. Like, look what you did. Like, you killed all these people. What the fuck? That that was really effective. Like, in, in any other game, they would have just said, like, you know, level complete and it ends. But in this game, they make you walk back out all the way past all of your destruction, get in the car and drive off to the mini mart for your pizza or whatever. Yeah, quietly, too. All the music stops after it's done, too. So it's just quiet retrospective. And they subvert this in interesting ways even throughout the game too like they had this idea and they really played with it a lot like at one point near the end of the game instead of getting back to your car another car bursts through the door and almost like takes your character out and you're subjected to going into a fight with an unexpected large number of foes after the level complete sign already appeared like this game just developed ideas that it had so well um, for such a short game you can get through it in probably about three hours <laughs> a generous three hours yeah i guess it depends on what you're bringing to the table as usual <laughs> hey this one didn't take me nine guys i was good at this one <laughs> good job um i did i did appreciate that you know as they went back through the levels if something was really hard for me that they randomized things a bit with the mechanics with each uh, time you restarted like enemies would have different loadouts different weapons would appear in different places uh enemies generally stayed on the same timers rather than resetting every time. So you could get some sort of placement advantage given enough retries and failures. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, if you failed it just enough times, they'd be like, hey, here, they'll like throw a knife here's, down. Like, here's a shotgun for you. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe try this out. Um, I mean, but that brings us back to the core. Like this game was combat puzzles. And, and, and the most important thing was it was a constant adrenaline rush. Like 
there is no reward for stop and think. You always have to keep moving. It's very much like Doom, which we'll talk about in, in, a, in a couple uh, months here. But it's just nonstop action. If you die, instant restart. Get back into it. And all while you're doing that, it just has the most banging soundtrack ever. And the music doesn't cut out or change at all when you do die. It just keeps on going, just like you do. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, for all of the uh, mention of Doom was a, a smart thing there because, I mean, Jacket, your character, is is basically the Doom Marine. Everyone in his way gets messed up. Pretty much. <laughs> I guess throughout the course of the story of this game, I found myself having just enough suspense to keep me going. You know, like you said, Clint, it's not a clear story, but they do continue to sort of drop breadcrumbs for you in terms of driving you forward. Like, in one way or another, there's sort of a reason to go to any given level, even if it's just that message on the the screen. But you do feel like your character's trying to take down like a criminal syndicate of some sort. Like, he thinks he's doing something good. Right. Even though it's probably just all in his head or he's doing all the wrong things. But but yeah, and, and I mean, TV shows have been taking on this motif for years, right? I mean, look at Lost. Every week you would tune in to see some new breadcrumb of something they might release. And then when you leave, it's actually more confusing than it ever was at the beginning. And then you get to the end of the show and nothing's ever explained. I mean, that's become like the normal. Like, it's just enough to drag you along, even though you know deep down like nothing's going to come out of this well i heard with lost what happened was after season one all the writers left so everybody who came up with the ideas was gone and everybody else was just like i guess we're a breadcrumb factory now yeah spoiler alert they were dead the whole time and everybody's in purgatory but they had to change the ending (laughs) (laughs) i mean uh Hey, I'm gonna cut that out. What if we have some lost, some people doing a lost rewatch here? Or I, lost I've never watched it, but just watching the first season, like I've watched the first season only, and I can just tell you <laughs> that that's what they were going for. And they're like, "Fuck, we have to make nine more seasons out of this." Oh, I don't know how we're gonna make that work out. Well, that's an interesting thing to bring up because um, <laughs> even you know the second Hotline Two didn't get as good of reception, and they did kind of spiral off into even more. Um, ambiguity, but it doesn't feel like they compromise their vision very much. Like these, as you were saying, Clint, these are guys that were uncomfortable with commercial success and really just wanted to make Hotline and then Hotline 2 because they thought they had good ideas and they wanted to see them come to fruition. Oh, um, yeah. So, yep. yeah, the, the nine seasons thing absolutely applies here. I think if we saw Hotline 3, 4, and 5, like it would get completely, increasingly rote and more ridiculous. Well, I think- they, they flat out said that they're not interested in doing that. Like, they thought basically Hotline 2 was all the things they wanted to talk about in Hotline 1, but these guys were just two guys who were running out of money and hanging out in, in a dingy apartment trying to make a game that they liked. Like they didn't have time to make everything that they wanted to make before it was time to get it out the door. So this was all the things they wanted but couldn't do before. And then they basically said, have a level editor and we're done. Like yeah. <laughs> this is the ultimate Hotline experience. This is everything we wanted you to have. And if you want to do more, make it yourself. Make it, and then make just it yourself. Be done. Yeah. That's yeah. good. I like that. Uh, you know, the uh, handing the, the toolkit over to the fans is always a cool move for me. Like when, you know, we talked about the Elder Scrolls creation kit and, you know, the modding scene in various places. I didn't go into any player-made levels in Hotline, but I, I appreciate the gesture that they have there of giving it back to the fans. Oh, yeah. 
And they're very true to their vision too. Like speaking of the commercial success thing, I remember watching an interview with them and, and the one guy just seems super uncomfortable to even talk about it. He's, he's like, yeah, we made a lot of money, but I don't even like my life better now than I did before. In fact, I'm like anxious about all this. People send me letters in the mail because I have money and I don't even want to open it. But then I get anxious about having not opened it. And I'm like, (laughs) these guys just wanted to make a cool game. They didn't care about the money. And that's, I think what really came out in the final product. Like this was not a game meant for anyone, but them. Yeah. They built what they wanted to play and it just turned out to be something other people wanted too. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's uh, uh, kind of the ideal for creating quote unquote commercial art. But, um, you know, they, they did it right. And, and, you know, we didn't get into a nine seasons problem with them. So I'm glad to see that. I do like that they facetiously put a Hotline Miami 3 um, title screen at the end of Hotline Miami 2. And it was, I don't know if you guys are aware of the end of Hotline Miami 2, but it ends with a nuclear explosion. And they have a title screen come up for Hotline Miami 3 that's just the same thing, but all the buildings in the background are leveled. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's like post-apocalyptic Hotline Miami, which I'm sure some people were like, oh, that'd be kind of cool. Maybe I should make that game. (laughs) Zombie Miami. It's called Borderlands Play It. It comes out next month. (laughs) Yeah. They got a new Borderlands coming out? Yep, September. Oh, okay. Sounds like a good co-op opportunity, guys. Oh, yeah, that could be fun. Um, Here's a question. We talked a little bit about this game's influences, like, uh, you know, the drives and Cocaine Cowboys and uh, Miami Vice, things like that. What what do you feel like this game influenced? What what came after this that, you know, took from it in a way, one way or another? Didn't Drive come after this? Yes. I swear it did. Drive it's came it. after. Some, I positive. thought they came out almost at the same time. Drive was t- 2011. This game was oh, 2012. Oh, wait, what? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brian so with about, the internet saves the day. I mean, I'm just trying to keep you from looking stupid, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, who knows when Super, Super Meat Boy came out? I feel like that could have been a game that came out after this. I feel that was coming out before. Yeah, that was definitely before. But there have been tons of games, even games we just recently talked about, that have taken advantage of this instant restart ultra difficulty. Right. I mean, it, it, I guess what this did is it evolved on some ideas that were already kind of out there in the the indie sphere, uh, but it did them in a really cool way and with really excellent theming. So can't fault them for that either. Yeah. I just assume, I guess it was so good that I just assumed that they influenced everyone else. <laughs> I feel like this never really took off as a genre or influenced a whole lot of other things for as much critical acclaim as it had. Yeah. I mean, top down shooters have always been pretty popular, but like, like I said, I don't think the, the main thing I think this game innovated on was its style. You know, it wasn't the uh, necessarily mechanically unique, uh, but it was stylistically unique and stylistically competent in a way that a lot of its contemporaries aren't. True. Yeah, I couldn't put my finger on it, but it is totally different from anything else I've ever played. Mm-hmm. And then style doesn't become genre mechanics do. Exactly. Yeah, in video yeah. games, that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, top-down dual-stick shooters is probably one of the oldest things in the book, so... That's true. It's a game in a long evolutionary chain that is a standout because of, you know, the particulars that it brought to the table. Because of the timing of when we're putting this episode out, there's a super important topic that's come up. Uh, obviously, you know, we had two 
two more shootings in our country. Um, and it seems that rather than take any you know, responsibility on gun laws or anything else, they're blaming video games now, which isn't necessarily new, but it's just, you know, it's back in the news again. And yeah, this is a tactic that's been done since... Um, since the 90s, Doom. right? I mean, since Wolfenstein, yeah, since video, since video games yeah. first came out, they always want to blame them. But guess what? There's video games everywhere, all over the entire world. And where do we have a mass shooting crisis? Not all over the entire world. That's just here, guys. Right. What's interesting, talking about the different cultures in the world, is I remember reading a interview from the developers for God of War two, or maybe three. I don't remember. Uh, God of War games are kind of like their own thing, one or the other. Um, but the developers were talking about how in Germany, or in the in European Union, they had to censor out some of the more violent aspects of the game, whereas in the U.S. they had to censor out some of the more sexual aspects of the game. And it just kind of goes to show you, like, hey, where's our priorities here and what we want to keep our children safe from? Yeah, that's true. God forbid you see a ding-dong. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to throw on the explicit content label for this one now. Yeah, you, you bring up a great point, though, Clint. I mean, this game was obviously hyper-violent, and, you know, obviously the visuals and things like that, it doesn't feel to me in this game, and I said this a bit up top, that they're glorified in any way. Um, no. This game no, is no, nothing no. but nihilistic feelings towards violence, if anything, in my book. Yeah, basically, and again, we talked about it, but basically, you perpetrate this violence, and then they make you go back and look at what you did. You have to see it again, like, almost like they're sticking your nose in it. Like, look what you did. This is wrong. With, like you said before, the music stopped. It's like the fun stopped now, guys. Look at what you did. Uh, Another interesting thing about this game is... um, Half the levels end with you finding some guy like on the shitter or like completely comatose and murking him to end the level. Um, it's not a game that like <laughs> valorizes going in and picking off helpless people. As a matter of fact, it starts to paint you as the perpetrator of some pretty heinous stuff. Uh, it's it, it has something to say on violence, but it's certainly not glorifying it. Yeah, and I guess the reason I want to talk about it too is because from the developer, I, I was already feeling like, ooh, this is a crazy time to be putting out this particular episode but then during the developer commentary i watched earlier they basically said that they wanted to make the most violent video game ever and i think they got pretty damn close if they didn't do it it's the most violent Um, third or pixel game ever probably oh yeah but i mean i thought i'd get your guys opinion like we all play violent video games all the time uh how do you feel after you play do you ever feel like squicked out yeah like um yeah i mean I'm a pretty, like, non-violent person. I don't particularly, like... I, I feel like it's one of those things that's very able to be car- compartmentalized. And uh, but We <laughs> all play games like Doom, Resident Evil, which you all call romps. I thought it was so hilarious. Like, this game where you where you beat a guy's face in with a baseball bat. This it's like ping pong. Action, yeah. ping pong. <laughs> this action-packed romp. And then next, next week we're doing a spooky romp, you know, where... You know, zombies are eating people's faces off. I'm scared of what romp is in your mind. <laughs> and that's that's fair. I think maybe what I'm getting at here is um, at some point the pixel art fades away and I just see this as, you know, triangles moving around on a grid or something along those lines, right? Like, it's not something I'm particularly taking to heart, the fact that Jacket is, you know, splitting people's brains in half. Uh, 
I more see it as, like you were saying, Josh, earlier, is this is a puzzle that I need to solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the enemies in this game are certainly very dehumanized as well. Uh, not through any, like, particularly, like, oh, these are evil, like, they don't have a... This guy is Hitler, and so is this guy and this guy. Kind of backstory to them where you're thinking about that, but there's just nothing to them. They're just uh, in a building. They are triangles and pixels. There is not a lot of humanization to them. And I think even if you aren't able to you know, divorce the violent art from what you're doing in the game, you there's still a far cry from rationalizing what you're doing in this game in your head and then thinking about the idea of going out and actually perpetrating something like that. Like that to me seems like such an excessively large quantum leap that um, I don't even really know what to say to folks that think that there's a logical connection there. Well, I do remember seeing an old psychology study. Um, if you take like a opinion of opinion survey of kids or teenagers as they leave the um, they leave a theater of a kung fu movie that just showed like they will have a slightly higher um i don't know they'll like be like violence is cool or more things like that they want to they want to do, do kung fu moves they want to do kung fu sure. yeah but that actually um that whole effect fades about 20 30 minutes after they leave the movie theater they did a follow-up study on that uh effect later on and showed it doesn't last yeah very ephemeral think- effect yeah, and, you know, I this is why I don't like generalizing, because, you know, that's maybe how it affects you and how it affects me, but, you know, maybe there is someone out there that uh, it affects in an abnormal or adverse way that's way outside of the normal limits, but, yeah, I guess uh, that's not great. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to see what, what you guys' feelings are. I mean, obviously, we all play these games. Just want to know how you feel afterwards. I, I agree with you, Josh. We all get... I mean, we play Doom or this game or any other game where we get pumped up. You get that adrenaline rush. But I'm never in a violent mood afterwards. If anything, I feel more calm. I just got my catharsis on and I'm good to go. That was what I was going to say is there's a a large, you know, side of this that also could just be treated as catharsis. Is that generally where you come down on this? Because I guess you haven't said how, how this affects you yet, Clint. Is that where you land? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously... I'm a mentally stable person, so... So you well, say. So I say. <laughs> the and so out here. <laughs> Yeah. I would like to think that of myself. Yeah. But, but, but when I'm done playing these games, it's, I, I never feel hate or, or anger or aggression even. In fact, I, I feel like I feel less aggressive when I'm done. Unless you're then, really stuck on a level. <laughs> then I get really mad, but that's only, that's only games like uh, Sekiro or Dark Souls. Or so. Celeste. Oh boy. <laughs> I got through all those, damn it. That's well, right. you uh, asked a question a little bit earlier, Clint. You asked me if I ever felt uncomfortable with the violence in a game. And I will say that yes for one game, actually, Undertale, has been the only game where I felt so uncomfortable with the violence that I had to stop playing. Because they made you feel too much for the character, they they humanize the character, and that's what these ga- these games are art. These games re- reflect life. They should make you uncomfortable with the violence. It should evoke that emotion in you. That's what art does. You don't uh, ignore the topic of violence. You show it, and you, you show it. yeah, and, and you show all its 
negative sides. And again, I think Hotline Miami does that. It doesn't glorify the violence. It makes you feel dirty. They yeah. talked about that in, in the interview too, but this the, the game makes you feel dirty. And it should. It should, because your character's done terrible things. It does, and yeah, you, you make a great point about Undertale, Josh. Can't believe I didn't reach for that myself, because I didn't make it through a, uh, a genocide run on that game either. I, uh, I couldn't do it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess uh, I guess that's where, where we land on the whole violence in video games thing. Are we ready for some three-word reviews? Yeah, let's do it. So, for Hotline Miami, my three-word review was Techno Murder Trance. Uh, This game was, again, hyper-violent. It was ultra-fast, ultra-difficult, ultra-violent. Never let you put on the brakes. Just constantly go, go, go. I found my favorite way to play it was after I had a couple drinks. Uh, Almost completely zoned out, turned up the music, and just went to town. Uh, Loved the style. Loved what they just put forward in this game. Like You could tell there was a lot of love and care that went into the game. And after watching the developer video, I think that even like made made even more sense to me after I, after I saw that. So this game's a big thumbs up for me. Uh, I know a lot of people probably haven't heard of it or seen it, but I would definitely recommend giving it a shot. All right, this game was a thumbs up for me as well. My three word review for it is Violent Neon Pinball. Uh, neon for the style, violent for the extreme acts of violence you perpetrate as a part of the game, and then pinball because of the kinetic energy of playing it. You are, it does feel like you are bouncing around from room to room, clearing it out, grabbing a new gun, going to the next one, and it's just such a, such an always on, always moving, always being driven by the music kind of state for me that and I think uh, it actually borrows a lot from pinball. My three-word review is Don't Think, Play. Uh, This game, to me, that was sort of the resounding mantra behind this game for me. Uh, It's bright colors, incredible soundtrack, and fast-paced action belie a game that doesn't have a whole lot to say about anything. Uh, It's a fun, action-packed romp. It reminds you that once the action is over, Jacket still has to go back to his life. And that life is empty. Uh, everyone and it dies. He eventually, you know, ends up at the top of a throne smoking a cigarette, thinking about basically nothing. It's vivid, but it's nihilistic. Uh, so it's better for this game, in my opinion, if you don't think, play. All right. Uh, next month's game is Resident Evil 2 2019 edition. Should be out just in time for, uh, you know, Halloween time frame. So get ready. Play some Resident Evil 2 with us. Uh, Capcom's latest remastering masterpiece. Spoiler alert, it's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we usually don't play things we think suck, but yeah, I like this game too. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. All right, looking forward to it. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skirsha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. Take care and keep on gaming. I'm drinking Schaffer Hopper because I couldn't find any Natter Days. Schaffer Hopper? 
What's that? I like the name. It is a grapefruit hefeweizen. Hmm, summary. It is tasty as shit. I've got monkey shoulder, a scotch, because I am a sophisticated gentleman. Very sophisticated. I've got Buffalo Trace, because it's fresh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Buffalo Trace is never fresh. That shit's at least 10 years old. (laughs) That's right, it's 10 years old, but it's freshly opened, we'll put it that way. Thank you.